Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Mark Shaw. He's just published a book, November 29th, 2022. Title of the book is Fighting for Justice, The Improbable Journey to Exposing Cover-Ups About the JFK Assassination and the Deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen. And this is not the first time we talked. We talked a couple times last year. Uh, the first time was about kind of the same issues. The title of the book we talked about in 2021 was Collateral Damage, The Mysterious Deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen and the Ties That Bind Them to Robert Kennedy and the JFK Assassination. That was published June 1st, 2021, I think. Or our interview was June 1st, 2021. Um, Mr. Shaw has published many books. He's a former criminal defense attorney and legal analyst for CNN, ESPN, and USA Today, and also for the Mike Tyson, O.J. Simpson, and Kobe Bryant criminal cases. And he's also the best-selling author of 30 books. And I go in kind of list his books in the earlier interview interviews, and I will put a link to those interviews in the show notes. And you can go check out uh, his books at his website. His website is markshawbooks.com. But uh, I'm delighted to have him back, and he's got some new research and new information. So, Mark Shaw, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks so much, William. I appreciate it. So for people who may not have heard our earlier interview, can you kind of take a little overview of your career? I know you cover that in your book. And then what led you to publish this new book, Fighting for Justice? Well, thank you. It is an improbable journey. I can't even believe it sometimes, frankly. Uh, you know, I, I appeared at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco uh, yesterday afternoon, and that gentleman that uh, introduced me said, I'm a magnet for uh, crowdsourcing. And frankly, I never even knew what that, uh, that term meant. But apparently, uh, when you put information out there, then you kind of wait and see and other people will come along and give you tips or embellish upon what you've, uh, you know, uh, you've found and, and, and help you new, find new information and things like that. And, and he's right. Uh, he's right. I'm the ultimate crowdsourcer because over the years with my books, especially now six touching on the JFK assassination, Dorothy and Marilyn, uh, almost, it's amazing. I, I, I keep writing a book and then I'm done and then I'm done and then I'm done. And then I was done for sure before fighting for justice. So it's been an improbable journey. And, and I, this time, so many people around the, the world who watch my presentations, there's almost seven and a half million views up there of books and about my books and all that. And, and reading the books and emails and everything. Um, I've asked, you know, how in the world did you do this? Because an awful lot of people know that I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I nearly uh, dropped out of Purdue University, uh, almost a, a college dropout. Took me almost six years to get through that university. Uh, I wasn't a good law student. Uh, had a tough time getting through law school and so on and so forth all the way through uh, what's happened to me. So in the book, I give them an idea of, you know, what the early years were at Purdue. I want to inspire people to go ahead and, and uh, you know, my mother and father's uh, uh, photograph is in the book. And my dad taught me one thing that was so important that uh, if you're not as smart as everybody else, you just have to work harder. And I've done that all the way through uh, the careers that I've had that we can go through in just a minute, but especially with my research about the JFK assassination, because, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, I think my research gets as close to the truth as can be possible. In this situation, we're going to expose for the first time what I believe is the most alarming example of government corruption in history. But that goes all the way back to when I first became a criminal defense lawyer. And I did that by accident, basically, uh, William. I had no idea that that's the area I would get into 
uh, after I graduated from law school. Uh, but uh, in one of those serendipitous moments of my life, and there's many of them, uh, a guy that I had interned uh, with during law school decided to run for the straight state legislature. And he liked me. And if he said if he won, he'd get me a public defender job. And he won. And on a Friday, I had no job. And I'd never tried a criminal case. And on a Monday morning, I was trying a first degree murder case uh, of a man who uh, shot his, his uh, girlfriend from six feet away uh, with a shotgun in front of her children. And uh, when I was appointed to represent him, uh, he asked me, uh, Mr. Shaw, now how many cases have you tried? And I said, none. And, and he said, well, okay. I said, I took some classes in law school. And so on that Monday, I represented him the best I could. Uh, he was convicted, of course, but he after the, the verdict came in, he, he turned to me and he shook my hand and said, thanks for doing the best you could do. And that let me know that maybe this was something that I could do. Uh, and so I began a legal career, uh, became one of the most prominent attorneys in the Midwest. Uh, the big break for me really came when uh, F. Lee Bailey, who uh, your audience will recognize, uh, you know, represented Dr. Sam Shepard and Patty Hearst and all of that. Uh, you know, there was a murder case in Indiana a uh, really unusual case. It was a doctor who was supposed to have uh, killed a DEA agent uh, who was in his uh, office suspecting the, uh, the, um, uh, the uh, physician of uh, dealing drugs. They found his body uh, on a, a bob, uh, you know, in a, in a lake uh, bobbing up on a cement block uh, with no head, and they called it the headless, headless torso case. And Bailey uh, was rep you know, and represented that man. And then Bailey got in touch with me out of all the lawyers in around the Midwest. And I, and I tried that case with, e with F. Lee Bailey. And that really catapulted me on uh, for the next few years. And I'll make this a little bit short, but I had most every one of the high profile cases in the Midwest. Uh, it just, uh, people trusted me, did my best job for them. I was in jail at six o'clock in the morning. Uh, investigating my cases during the day, trying the cases, and I had pretty darn remarkable record of the last six or seven, eight, ten cases of, of first-degree murder uh, of getting an acquittal. But uh, just like everybody, ha it, you know, has this happened to them with their career they're in, I finally decided that wasn't the life I wanted. Uh, if anybody knows about the criminal justice justice system, uh, the, obviously the victim, uh, you know, is, is, is gone and, or, or their life has changed and whoever perpetrated the crimes going to prison most of the time, it's just, it's just a very dark, uh, profession. And so I said to myself, Hey, I got to do something else. So I left the Midwest and I moved to Aspen, Colorado, where I had spent a couple summers. And, uh, I think you'll get a kick out of this. The first thing that happened, I'm going to take off my hat and just to show you, I, I still have a lot of hair. But uh, a lot of people thought I looked just exactly like John Denver. And I've got some good stories about that because uh, many times uh, people would come up to me and say, uh, Mr. Denver, I'd like to have your autograph. And I would say, well, I'm not John Denver. I can't sing a lick. And I'm Mark Shaw. And they would say, well, listen, just in case you are John Denver, would you sign your name on this napkin or whatever? So I would sign it, Mark Shaw. And I think they went back, William, to Des Moines or wherever they are from and said, listen, I got John Denver's autograph. Um, you know, he said he was Mark Shaw, but I'm sure that was John Denver. So I spent time in Aspen. Uh, I started a newspaper there and then I got another big break. And, and, and again, um, compliments of F. Lee Bailey. Uh, people probably uh, who aren't up in age as I am don't remember the big case at that time in the country was Claudine Langer. Uh, Andy Williams' uh, wife, 
shooting uh, uh, Spider Savage, who was a member of the national ski uh, team and, and a real celebrity and everything in Aspen. And uh, that trial was going on. Lee Bailey was supposed to cover it for Good Morning America. He couldn't go and he suggested me. And that got me into the television area. I worked for Good Morning America. I covered that trial. Claudine trusted me and gave me the only interview she ever did. Uh, by the way, she was convicted of a lesser crime, not murder, although I believe she was guilty of murder, frankly. But uh, that got me into uh, uh, covering trials. And later on, then I would try to, uh, I would cover the O.J. Uh, Simpson case, actually uh, being on the air on ESPN when he was driving around L.A. And then the Kobe Bryant case uh, in Colorado when he was charged with rape. Uh, that case uh, will always bother me because whenever, whenever I hear Kobe Bryant's name, um, I, I remember what happened in the courtroom. They uh, exposed the uh, victim's name. Uh, she ran away, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't testify. Uh, Kobe Bryant was acquitted. In my mind, he's a rapist and should have gone to prison. I get, uh, I get criticized for that, but the, all, all the evidence that I saw, uh, I thought he was guilty. So, um, uh, you know, I had covered those trials and I hadn't covered any other trials. And I think, you know, uh, from looking at the book, William, but the next break that came along was the Mike Tyson case. And that was in Indianapolis, right? So that's kind of where you were headquartered is where the events yeah. of Marilyn Mike Tyson. I, yeah. I'd been on the West Coast and I decided I'd kind of had enough of the Hollywood uh, things that went, went on. I, I was on a, a show for CBS called People with Phyllis George, the former uh, Miss America, and uh, moved to New York, as a matter of fact, for that show. Ran around it, or ra rode around with uh, Paul Newman in his race car and covered some other kind of... Uh, you know, light stories, I guess you would call them. But finally, I'd had enough and I missed my roots and I moved back to Indiana. And again, this improbable journey, uh, we never know what's going to happen in life. One of my sayings is keep the faith. You never know when a miracle's right around the corner. And I've had so many of those. I'm such a blessed man. But in this case, Mike Tyson was charged with rape in 1992. And uh, I decided, hey, I, I want to cover that case maybe and, and write some things for USA Today or ESPN or whatever who had contacted me, so I wrote the judge. Well, the judge happened to be a, a former prosecutor uh, who I had faced when I was a criminal defense lawyer in Indianapolis. And Pat, uh, Pat Riley uh, got me the, uh, you know, said, yes, you can certainly cover it, but will you handle the media? And so I handled, I kind of controlled, I organized, I did all of that with the media, sat in the front row there at the Tyson case and watched him get one of the worst defenses of any man who, who ever, has ever been charged with a crime, especially rape. Uh, Don King, who was the promoter for Tyson, had just been acquitted of a tax evasion case in Washington, D.C., and decided, well, if that lawyer can get me off, so to speak, for a tax evasion case, he ought to be able to handle a rape case. Oh. So I sat there and watched all these mistakes that he made. His defense, um, uh, William, you'll like, Mike Tyson is the worst human being that ever lived. He's violent. Uh, he's he's uh, he's all of these terrible, terrible things. And the woman should have known better than to invite him up to her hotel room. Well, the jury decided, yeah, he is the worst uh, man on the on the planet. He is violent. Let's put him in prison. And and the evidence wasn't there. So that was my first book then that I wrote. That was uh, there was also I, a problem with that case too. You write about the fact that the prosecutors knew she was selling her story prior to the conviction, Tyson's yes, conviction, right? Good point, exactly. Corruption there in many ways. I've, I've always been so upset with corruption at all. And those prosecutors who I knew, two of the lawyers from my criminal defense days, 
they knew that she was uh, uh, had already sold the rights to her story and all of this, and then they didn't divulge that. And in the book, I was able to point out that two jurors, when they found out, they would have never convicted uh, Tyson. So we went to prison. And uh, it, it, is a, it is an interesting story because I'll tell you what, the moment he went to prison, I thought he was done. I thought he would be in prison, he would come out, he'd get into drugs, he'd do whatever. But it's a good story in some ways. Uh, it kind of straightened him out a little. And, uh, you know, he's gone on with his life and done very well. But uh, that was the first time when I uh, wrote a book uh, and it was called uh, Down for the Count. And uh, i just give you a, a quick idea of how I started my uh, my literary career, uh, a woman called me from Indianapolis and said, Mark, uh, there's a review of your book. And I said, is that right? She said, do you want to hear it? And I said, yes. And she said, are you sure? I said, I said uh, she said, are you sure? And I said, well, yeah, I guess. She said, well, here's the headline. Mark Shaw's uh, book on Tyson, Worthless. So that's how I started my literary career. But I enjoyed that. And, you know, people have asked me because I have no training. What I had no training whatsoever with writing long form. How did I end up writing all these books, 30 some at, at the last count and, and a bestseller and all of that. Well, I, I, I write like I talk to juries uh, and I try to, to use common language because I'm not uh, you know, very knowledgeable, knowledgeable of big words or whatever. I try to get them to stop and think like I did when I was talking to, talking to juries. What's the truth here and all of that. And so uh, uh, Down for the Count started a literary career and since then, you know, I've gone on to publish books about Don Jonathan Pollard, the uh, uh, the spy, uh, the uh, couple books on the Holocaust, even one on Larry Bird, one on uh, Don Larson's Perfect Game in the World Series and all of that. And then all at once, uh, again, a, a critical moment in my life took place when I decided to write a book about a guy named Melvin Belli, a famous attorney in San Francisco that I had actually practiced law with in the mid-1980s. And when I started delving into his career, uh, everything changed right then. And he was a very colorful figure in the Bay Area. He was very well known. He was in the limelight. And he was involved, I think, in the uh, Zodiac case, too. So right. he had been around in very high-profile cases and was known as the King of Torch. You mentioned that in your book. So he was a very kind of uh, one of the first big kind of trial lawyers, lawyers who had huge damage uh wins right and civil cases. That, was, that was the point he was a tort lawyer he was a personal injury lawyer you know i, I do want, i don't want to forget to tell you that while in aspen so many different things happened to me but one of the most interesting was uh i did get to spend some time uh with hunter thompson and uh i i did so because i read his books and i and i started to think about some things that i could do with my writing and all of that but, uh, you know, that, that was quite fascinating because such a bigger than life personality. He would sit at the Hotel Jerome bar with that cigarette, you know, and he'd have the extension on it and everything. And he'd, he'd drink this uh, wild turkey uh, uh, whiskey. Uh, Johnny Depp would be there at times and so on and so forth. But I'll never forget with uh, Hunter Thompson, we set up an interview with him with Good Morning America. He said he would do it and we we're going to do it at 10 o'clock at night. And so they got a crew up from Denver and uh, a camera crew from Denver, and uh, 10 o'clock uh, came, and no Hunter, 11, no Hunter, one, two, three, four, we finally gave up, and a few years later, uh, I went to a book signing of his, and he said, oh, wait a minute, you're Mark Shaw. Uh, are we going to do that interview with uh, the Today Show tonight? I mean, that was Hunter Thompson, and I, I just bring that up because some of these things in this improbable journey 
you just can't make up. But Belli, back to him, yes, you're right. Uh, the Zodiac case, uh, he handled a lot of, of uh, he was one of the first to sue the pharmaceutical companies and get multi-million dollar verdicts and all that. But when I started looking into his life and times, what I found out was his affinity for the, for the mafia. Mickey Cohen, a, a dangerous Los Angeles gangster, was one of his best friends and uh, he represented, um, uh, rep Belli represented uh, Cohen. And I got to thinking, something's wrong here. He's a personal injury lawyer. How in the world? I mean, you're a curious guy, William. You would have done what I did. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I started thinking, how did he become Jack Ruby's lawyer for a capital case when Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald? And uh, so, oh, I see somebody's made a comment about Claudine Langer. That's a very interesting comment, really. A parody of the ballad of Claudine Claudine. Langer. Boy, I'd love to see that ballad, John, if you can uh, let me know where it is, because I'm, I, I want to just tell you something, too, that's interesting here about that, uh, that's come up. Um, I, I've been so honored in so many ways, but about, and I think you'll like this, John, uh, as well as you, William, uh, about a week and a half ago, I got an email, and the email started out, I am a singer-songwriter by the name of Judy Collins. Talk about being humble. Uh, and I am, am, you know, really interested in Dorothy Kilgallen, and I'm so upset with all of the nonsense about her life and times and her death, which we'll get into in a little bit, and everything like that. And uh, I'm so sorry that that's happened. And, and she then went on to say some really nice things about my investigating Dorothy's death and all of that. But uh, she was in, in Colorado when Claudine Langer shot Spider Savage, and she wrote a poem about it, and she sent that to me. So it's interesting, John, how that kind of correlates uh, there. But uh, uh, what an honor to have a, you know Judy Collins get in touch with me. We've been emailing back and forth, and I'm actually going to see her in a concert up here at Santa Cruz uh, in January. But you know that that was Melvin Belli. So I started to look into uh, the JFK assassination, and frankly, I was never interested in it. When I grew up in uh, this shows my age, but in 1963, I was a, a freshman in college. Uh, JFK died. I cried like everybody else. And then I heard, you know, J. Edgar Hoover shouting Oswald alone, Oswald alone. And I bought it just like everybody bought it. And as you'll see, uh, that, that the corruption started right then, as, as we talk about in the new book, Fighting for Justice. So what I did is I went back to the 60 election. And quickly, I will tell you that what I found out, of course, is common knowledge. Uh, Joe Kennedy knew they were going to lose that election. JFK was going to get beat, beaten by uh, Richard Nixon unless they won uh, Illinois and West Virginia. So he used his uh, friend, uh, the uh, diabolical uh, Frank Sinatra, to contact some of, uh, some of his mafia buddies that Joe knew, Sam Giancana in Chicago, Carlos Marcello in New Orleans, Traficante in Florida, and all those guys, and we'll get into Marcello later. But uh, hey, if you'll help us win Illinois and West Virginia, uh, we will leave you guys alone when we get in the White House. That was the promise. Well, what happened, though, was when they got in the White House, in, as, as, just as soon as possible, I had an eyewitness, and I only use primary sources in my books. I don't speculate. If there's hearsay evidence, I confirm it, like we'll, you'll see I have done with the new book. Uh, but what I found out was that uh, there was a double cross, because Joe Kennedy ordered JFK to appoint Bobby Kennedy attorney general. And Bobby Kennedy, if you know anything about him, hated the mafia at the McCullen hearings. He made racketeering hearings. He made 
fun of, uh, of Sam Giancana. You're giggling like a little girl. You guys dress, you know, with your slick back hair. He wrote a book about it, uh, Enemy Within. Well, what did he do to show his big brother and his father that he was this, you know, he was he was a big as big a shot as they were. He went after the, uh, the Mafia Don in, uh, in New Orleans, Carlos Marcello. He deported him to Guatemala. Uh, Marcello got back in the United States. And Dorothy Kilgallen, when we talk about her investigation of the JFK assassination, this famous reporter in New York City, uh, you'll see that she she honed in on Marcello. And why? Motive. When I was a criminal defense lawyer, you always look at motive. That's the detective's best friend. And what happened is that uh, Marcello decided that he uh, had, had to revenge what uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy had done. And so uh, uh, what he did is he decided, listen, I've got to get rid of that guy. And so uh, if I kill Bobby Kennedy, then Jack Kennedy will come after me with everything the government has. But if I kill JFK, if I orchestrate his death, then Bobby Kennedy will be powerless. And William, that's exactly what happened. Bobby Kennedy resigned as attorney general and never went after those guys again. All right. So JFK gets killed November 22nd, 63, and Johnson becomes president. And then Kennedy resigns, right? Or Bobby Kennedy resigns. Is that right? He does. And of course, he and JF, um, he and uh, uh, LBJ didn't get along at all and everything. So that was... You know, that was the book, uh, Poison Patriarch, that I had written. But while I was looking into Melvin Belli's death, and this is how these things happen that are crazy, um, a friend, a good friend of him, a doctor in San Diego, said to me, you know, uh, Melvin Belli knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And I said, well, wait a minute. She, she's the star panelist. All I know is my family and I used to watch her on What's My Line, the quiz show in New York City. It was watched by a million people every night on Sunday night. He said, oh, Mark, you don't know anything about her. She was syndicated, her newspaper column in New York, to 200 newspapers across the country. She had a radio show with her husband, listened to by a million people every day. She covered the uh, Lindbergh baby kidnapping case. She covered the Dr. Sam Shepard case. And I want to say right now that everything about Dorothy Kilgallen I'll talk about, or an awful lot of it, with videos and and uh, everything else, especially about the JFK assassination, is on the website the Dorothy Kilgallen story.org. And up there, you would see a photograph that is a favorite one of mine. I mean, uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway called her the greatest female writer in the world then. The New York Post said she was the most powerful female voice in America. She was big time. Hell, I, I found out, uh, and in this book, is the fact that not only did she uh, cover the uh, coronation of Queen Elizabeth, but Queen Elizabeth trusted her to go with uh, the queen to getting her first hair permanent. And Dorothy went ahead and, and uh, put that in an article that she wrote. So she was big time. And uh, that, that book was going to become The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, which became a bestseller. But what I found out then was that Dorothy, and I have the documents right here, she was a very, very close friend of JFK. And um, they had, uh, JFK had been to her home for parties. They had played charades. Uh, and a big moment in Dorothy's life, and the reason that she loved JFK so much. Thank you, William, for putting those up there. Yes, that's some some photographs. That's uh, her that, with Melvin uh, Belli. Dorothy with Melvin Belli that we'll talk about in a minute. And so uh, they were close friends. And uh, when when Jack Ruby shot uh, Lee Harvey uh, Oswald, she knew that something was wrong. And uh, she had taken her son to the White House, as a matter of fact, Carrie. JFK made a big deal, big fuss about him. 
and uh, there's there's Carrie, and uh, gave him a PT 109 pen and make a made a fuss over letters he brought from his sixth grade uh, third grade class. And in fact, what's interesting is when she wrote a column about the JFK assassination, she said something like, and I'm paraphrasing, um, uh, the man who died is a, a tall man who stooped over a little boy and made a fuss over his uh, letter he the letters he wrote from his third grade class. This is the man who died in, in, in Dallas. So she humanized him. And then what did she do? Well, Dorothy took off for, for, the, for Dallas. And she started publishing articles of hers. The first one was Oswald, a file must not close. She didn't believe, uh, and she was the only one that didn't. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover shouting Os Oswald alone, Oswald alone, Oswald alone. So she wrote these, uh, these articles. And one of her quotes in that, in that particular article was uh, uh, something like, uh, you know, uh, justice is a big rug. And when you unfurl it, uh, more powerful men fill out, uh, you know, fall out. Uh, so she didn't buy any of that. And of course, what happened with that particular column, boy, this is great that you're putting these up here, because uh, she made an enemy right then, right away. And, 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 and the enemy was one of the most dangerous men in the United States of America, and that was the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, she wrote an article that said that, hey, wait a minute, uh, uh, Jesse Curry, the Dallas uh, uh, chief of police, the first thing that he did when he heard the shots was send the p police to the overpass, not the book depository. I found in the National Archives, I believe it was, which is the most authentic place to find documents, not Wikipedia or anything like that, a document where across that article in capital letters written wrong, wrong, wrong in J. Edgar Hoover's handwriting. So she made, a, she made an enemy right then. And what she did then is at the trial, uh, she listened to the, uh, the testimony in the front row uh, uh, as far as what went on with, uh, with uh, Ruby and all of that and killing Oswald. And we'll talk about that with the next book. But she listened to all of that. And then again, in one of those crazy moments in this improbable journey, uh, I found out that guess what the most popular program was at Jack Ruby's Carousel Club in Dallas? What's my line? And so wow. he knew about Dorothy. And when she, uh, when, when Joe Tonahill, who was Belli's co-counsel, uh, came up to her and said, Jack Ruby wants to talk to you, uh, she got the only interview with Jack Ruby at trial out of 400 papers. And at the Dr. Sam Shepard case, and that photograph that's uh, right there, uh, this is who Dorothy Kilgallen was. All of the other reporters are gathered around her. She had this integrity. How many people have sent me emails from around the world saying, I wish we had uh, a, a, a reporter like Dorothy Kilgallen. But what and happened she came, from a reporter, she came from a reporter's family too. Oh so yes, kind of point. family business in her blood, right? Yeah, she her ancestors were, were from Ireland. Her father was Jim Kilgallen and uh, he had a remarkable record. He was uh, a very well award-winning uh, newspaper man. In fact, I didn't know until a uh, not too long before I finished this book that he was one of the first reporters to have ever exposed the Dachau uh, concentration camp in Germany. So the heredity was there. And there's a good quote in there that, you know, uh, she used to sit on his lap while he was typing at home and things like that. So uh, she's a college dropout. She dropped out of college because she wanted to be a reporter like her, her father. And she got the chance at the New York Journal American. So what did she see at trial? Well, uh, she found out that, uh, you know, obviously Melvin Belli's uh, defense of Ruby 
it was uh, it was a called a, a psychomotor epilepsy insanity defense. Made no sense to the jury, obviously. And uh, Belli also wouldn't let uh, Ruby testify. Uh, I found out later that, uh, and it's in the new book, that uh, Melvin Belli knew about the assassination before it happened. How do I know that? Because when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald, a waiter walked up to a table uh, where Belli was uh, sitting with one of his uh, best friends, and I interviewed that best friend. And when Belli heard that, he said, well, okay, now I'll have to re represent Ruby instead of Oswald. So Belli was brought in to shut up Jack Ruby, make him look stupid, make him look uh, insane and all of that. And obviously the jury then went ahead and convicted um, uh, Ruby. And there's a lot more about that in the book. But what did Dorothy do? This is what's so important. Whatever Ruby told her, sent her to New Orleans. And as I said before, that's where the Mafia Don ruled, uh, Carlos Marcello. And he, his empire, which is a multi-million dollar empire at that time, stretched to Dallas. And he had his underlings, Joe Savello and Joe Campisi there. And, and uh, we're going to talk about how Marcello then went ahead and decided he was going to, uh, you know, uh, silence, uh, uh, silence Bobby Kennedy by uh, killing uh, JFK because it all stretches in there. There's a silver thread, just a simple thread through all of this, not these crazy conspiracy theories that are out there, but there was obviously a plot to kill the president and Dorothy knew about. So she goes to New Orleans and she interviews whoever she's supposed to interview. She takes her hairdresser with her. And then while she's there, she said, listen, you go back to New York City and don't tell anyone you were here. And Dorothy had obviously gotten her in danger. She knew about what was said at the Ruby trial. She knew the evidence was that Jack Ruby just didn't happen by the Dallas basement to shoot Oswald, that there was evidence that he told uh, a very reputable source, I will be there when the transfer takes place. The police will help me get in the basement. Um, I will make like a reporter to get in. So Dorothy had all this information in her and she was in danger. She went back to New York City and she did. She made the same mistake that Marilyn Monroe made. And we'll talk about her, how that, how that investigation came up in my life. Uh, she was a blabbermouth. I'm going to crack the case wide open. I know there was a conspiracy. I know this. I know that. And I'm writing a book for Random House, a tell-all uh, book for Random House. And so as the fall of 1965 came along, Dorothy was on What's My Line on the, uh, on the eighth day of uh, 1965 in the evening. This is What's My Line. That's Bennett Cerf. That's Dorothy on the right. John Daly is the uh, moderator. And there's Arlene Francis. Very popular program. If you and, and millions of people now uh, watch the reruns on YouTube, and I hear from so many of them who watch, for instance, Dorothy's last program and where she is just as sharp as she was. She was almost like a prosecutor uh, and guess more of the occupations. That's what they did. Unusual occupations than anyone else. So um, I, I started looking into Dorothy and all of that. And what I found out is that on the last day of her life, uh, she she did the program. Then she went to PJ Clark's, which is a famous watering hole in New York City, and then she was to meet this uh, journalist she had uh, had met earlier uh, during a European media junket. He was from the Midwest. He was, his, his, his career was going nowhere. They ended up having an affair, and uh, I found out that this man, Ron Pataki, uh, was able to, to get Dorothy to trust him and gave her a great deal of information about her JFK investigation, assassination investigation. 
So as uh, this date came up, she had shared that with him. And although I interviewed him several times, he denied all that. He denied the affair. But on the last night of her life, she met with somebody, a man at a hotel near where she lived on East 68th Street. And we've been able to prove that was Ron Pataki. And uh, something happened that night. And uh, I've been able to prove that uh, uh, not uh, because what happened is Dorothy died. And when she was found the next day, the medical examiners came and they decided there was an empty bottle of secondol and that she overdosed. Uh, circumstances undetermined, they call it, which is a very, very strange verdict. But I was able then to look into this. The police never investigated. I did find out that J. Edgar Hoover, shortly after Dorothy died on that Saturday morning, sent his agents to her home. I was able to prove that he had them take all of her files, investigation material, everything else, which has disappeared to this day. But then looking into the forensics of all of this, uh, William, I was able to find out that uh, there weren't just, there wasn't just one barbiturate in Dorothy's uh, stomach, three, uh, phenobarbital, secanol, and tulinol, and together those were lethal. And at Pataki, uh, according to the theories that we have and the forensic evidence and what made sense there with those who were at the family home, went with her to her home and uh, deposited, uh, inserted, whatever you want to call it, those barbiturates into a vodka and tonic that she drank and, and obviously died of an overdose of, of drugs, but not her own doing. It was Ron Pataki and it was murder. So uh, I, I kept tracking down exactly what happened to Dorothy. And that became, as I say, the bestseller of the reporter who knew too much. I tried with the New York District Attorney's Office to get Pataki investigated. Also with the New York Police Department commissioner, I went back to New York and met with him. They did a half-ass investigation of Dorothy's case saying it was too expensive, too long ago, and so on and so forth. But with the new evidence I have in fighting for justice about uh, miss, the missing link in my mind, uh, how, how much more danger Dorothy was in than I knew, uh, I'm going to keep trying to see if I can't get a new investigation of her death. Wow. And she was right. So all that information that they had, that she had, that Ruby was loitering around the police station has all been verified through pictures and videos and ruby pops up and all these things and they were dragging oswald in between offices like they were trying to set him up for a shooting before he ended up i think getting shot on sunday morning if i remember correct oswald, so yeah. yeah so the assassination happened on on a friday ruby <laughs> shoots oswald on a sunday and then all three people yeah. are buried tippet jfk and oswald are hastily buried monday Right. And then because of uh, her with the Oswald alone theory, everybody just goes off on that track except for Dorothy. And that and, and what she did to try to expose the truth is what cost her her life. I try to say that and we'll get into that a little bit more. But uh, you want to know why uh, Dorothy Kilgallen had it right in uh, all of her columns and everything else she did? Well, they killed her and they couldn't let her write that book for, for Random House. And, and as far as the Ruby testimony at trial, I got another break. I'm sure your audience is wondering what's going on here. I certainly have uh, because I got a call from a, an attorney in Fresno, Greg Mullinux, a very well-known attorney. Oh yeah, we should, we should uh, talk about that in a second. But let me tell you in the next book, Denial of Justice, which was the, the, the fourth book, uh, fourth book. Yeah. Uh, I had the Ruby trial transcripts. Uh, Greg sent them to me. Uh, there's a picture in the book of me looking through them, 2000 pages. And I found all that corroborative evidence of uh, what I talked about with uh, Ruby, I will be there and all that kind of thing. This is uh, important because it'll come up with the um, corruption that I found, uh, what I think is the most alarming corruption in US history at the Warren Commission, 
because in the Warren Commission report, it will say that uh, Ruby had no connection uh, with the uh, police. And, uh, you know, Dorothy was so good at looking at the little things. I'm, I'm a disciple of Dorothy Kilgallen. Because remember what my dad said, if you're not smart enough to do things, find somebody that is. Well, Dorothy was. And so uh, what I found out is that she had written that column you had up there a minute ago, uh, and that was about the police. Because Dorothy, uh, you know, she was queen of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the society and of the, of the entertainment industry in New York. And so what this uh, particular uh, column says is that she talked to some of the acts that she uh, put in her column, singers, dancers, so on and so forth. And, and what did they tell her? Well, yeah, we hung out at Jack Ruby's um, carousel bar. He used to comp us with regard to uh, drinks and, uh, you know, kind of set us up with the strippers and everything else that way. And so, uh, as you'll see, Dorothy had it right here as well. So Denial of Justice was, uh, was uh, published, and that was going to be it again. But I kept having people around the world, and this is what we talked about last year, so I don't want to go into that too much. But people kept asking, Mark, is there a, um, uh, is there a connection between the deaths of uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, Marilyn Monroe, and John F. Kennedy? And I said, no, I didn't think so until... I found a photograph that's in the book. Uh, it's Dorothy Kilgallen with Marilyn Monroe at 20th Century Fox where she's making a movie. Then I found out that Marilyn had been to Dorothy Kilgallen's uh, uh, home on 68th Street at parties. There's the photograph. Parties uh, at Dorothy's home. Uh, there was a quick little quote, a uh, quick little quip that uh, at one point Dorothy's uh, butler had to, to help Marilyn to her car because she was a, uh, she'd had a little bit too much to drink. So that was a some confirmation. Again, these confirmations come along when I throw this uh, information out there. And I will bet you, Willem, William, that uh, after this uh, interview airs, I'll hear from some people who've watched it and they'll have information for me as well. My, my uh, website, markshawbooks.com, has my email, but it's mshawin at yahoo. And I would welcome any information you want to send along. So I find this picture and then I find uh, a aha moment, which is always something we find in our investigations. And that was a column that uh, Dorothy wrote one day, one day before uh, Marilyn died. And it said, uh, Marilyn Monroe is on the upswing in Hollywood. She's going to parties. She's found a new uh, love affair that is a bigger name than Joe DiMaggio, who was the New York slugger, as you may know. She's got uh, offers for Broadway shows and movies and so on and so forth, because an awful lot of people at that time thought Marilyn was going through tough times with drugs and alcohol and so whatever. But I read this article by Dorothy, who knew here, and I'm saying to myself, wait a minute, this verdict, you may know, was that she had committed suicide, uh, probable suicide, which Dr. Cyril Weck, who's the greatest, in my opinion, forensic scientist in, our, in, in the country, in the world, maybe, told me he's never seen that verdict in 16,000 autopsies he's, he's uh, undertaken. Wow. So that really made me wonder what was going on with that verdict as well. So what I have, an interview with, I have an interview with Cyril Leck too, his kind of autobiography good. where he goes through oh, he's just People good. can check that out. He's just the really? best, and he's been a great supporter of mine. Sent him a book for sure, this Amazing book as well as the others. So anyway, okay, where, where is my journey taking me now? Well, I've got to find out what happened to, uh, to, to uh, Marilyn. And the bigger name than Joe DiMaggio is what stuck with me. So what did I do? I thought, well, what? I know what's a bigger name. Everybody knows that she had a brief affair with a bigger name 
named John F. Kennedy. And it happened when Marilyn sang happy birthday to John F. Kennedy on his 45th birthday at Merritt Madison Square Garden. You can see the photograph of her at the microphone. She has this, uh, uh, this uh, see-through dress on and so on and so forth. And all of that is, is what's happening. So um, yeah, yeah, you're gonna be able to show it there. Unfortunately, it's from the back. There's never a, a, a frontal of that, but there's the photograph then. I found out that Jack Kennedy had a short affair with her, but that ended when Joe Kennedy told Jack he had to need, leave her alone. But after that, uh, that, that song that she sang, uh, Happy Birthday, Mr. President, there's Bobby Kennedy on the left and there's Jack Kennedy on the right, both looking at, at, door, at Maryland. And this is when the, oh. This is the yeah. famous kind of uh, yeah. thing. Yeah, singing. Peter Lawford. Peter Lawford introduces Maryland. And I'm telling you right now, in my, with my research, this is when the drum roll started to Marilyn Monroe's death uh, because she got in uh, what somebody has called the cesspool of the Kennedys. And, and that's exactly what happened. So what, what I moved on to was, and you, we'll see if this comes up and we come back to it in a minute with Marilyn coming up there. But what I found out is that, oh, there she is being introduced. And then she sings happy birthday. Can, do you have the audio on that or not? Sure. Would you like to hear it? Sure. Sure, just a little bit. her tribute to JFK. And, uh, you know, you can, you can find that on YouTube and so on and so forth. So they met after the, after the event, but then I found out, uh, you know, uh, Bobby Kennedy, I'm going to hone in on him because he's a bigger name than Joe DiMaggio too. And what I found was a, a CIA document, uh, found at the national archives, I believe, uh, I believe that's where I found it anyway. And it, it was double sorted. On, on the first page, it talked about JFK, Dorothy, and Marilyn's interest in UFOs. Uh, but then, and those were uh, courtesy of uh, wiretaps by J. Edgar Hoover's uh, FBI agents. And then it said uh, some things like, uh, well, Dorothy, or Marilyn has had enough of the Kennedys. She feels like she's been thrown around. I think that was in another document too. And she's going to the media about all this. And also she's going to the media with uh, what the Kennedys told her which is that JFK uh, planned on having the assassination of Fidel Castro. Well, if you can imagine, she could have told the media about the affairs and everything else, but to talk about matters of national security that both Kennedys told her, whether it was pillow talk or just their big egos or whatever, that would have finished them for sure. They could not let her do that. And I found the second half of that document, which basically said during the summer of 1962, uh, Robert Kennedy had a, a basically a torrid love affair with Marilyn Monroe to the effect that uh, that uh, Bobby Kennedy told Marilyn uh, that he would divorce his wife, Ethel, and marry Marilyn. Well, then all at once, no phone calls will be uh, received from Marilyn, either at the Justice Department or in the White House. And I have this visual in the book where Marilyn, who, who Dorothy wrote about craving love, just wanted love in her life, is sitting there by the phone crying her eyes out. 
So what happened then? Well, Bobby Kennedy and I placed him in, in Los Angeles on the day Marilyn died. Uh, and and uh, he said he was in San Francisco. I proved he wasn't. And he and Peter Lawford went to her home and tried to talk her out of going to the media. And when she refused, uh, she was dead. And I've got two new accounts in the uh, in the new book as to how Marilyn uh, was uh, was uh, po poisoned with barbiturates. Uh, it's not a very pretty story, and I don't want to go ahead and say too much about it on the air like this. But uh, there were some the way that they did it was just uh, just uh, you know despicable uh, as to how they killed her. Uh, the police came, uh, didn't investigate, looked at a uh, empty bottle, uh, a pill bottle, and decided she overdosed and committed suicide. And then, of course, the Kennedy brothers and Joe Kennedy were great cover-up artists, as you will see when we talk about the Warren Commission. Uh, what they did is they had their buddy, uh, Chief Parker of the Los Angeles Police, and no investigation. They appointed three psychiatrists to look into her mental state, and they all came back and said, well, she's had mental problems and things like that. Case closed. And August 4, 1962, right? So, yeah, remember, 62 is Marilyn's death. 63 is JFK, 65 is Dorothy. And I, I don't want to quit with this story without saying to you what could have happened here. But what if? If Bobby Kennedy would have been prosecuted for Marilyn Monroe's death based on the compelling evidence at the time, which should have been gathered and wasn't, uh, there, there would have been no need for, he would have had to have resigned. And there would have been, been no need for Carlos Marcello to have orchestrated the death of uh, JFK to make Bobby powerless because he would have been powerless already. And there would have been no JFK assassination for uh, Dorothy Kilgallen to have investigated uh, an investigation that caused her death. So right there, and, and I, I get pretty emotional when I say that, uh, Marilyn should have never died. This, is, this, was, this was just the, the Kennedys in action there and, and very much disturbed me. So that was all in collateral damage because uh, she was collateral damage of Bob, what happened with Bobby Kennedy. And then with Dorothy Kilgallen, she also was a collateral damage uh, with what happened to her. And so collateral damage, I proved for the first time the deaths were connected and then showed with all of the evidence that I had that Bobby Kennedy should have been prosecuted at that time. And once again, William, I was going to quit. Right. And I mean, that's really incredible. If she, if it would have been exposed that she had been with Bobby and JFK at the time, it would have destroyed both of their political careers. It would have destroyed JFK's chance in 64, yep. right? And Bobby's legitimacy at that time, that would have been a huge scandal. So, but that, they, that one sentence in that, in that CIA document that's in the book, when you, when the readers see it, they send me emails and everything. Uh, I, I, it's just hard to believe that the Kennedys try. You know, uh, Joe Kennedy had a trophy wife. That was Gloria Swanson, the silent movie star, uh, to the effect that the way he treated his wife, Rose, in the book, I quote a book called The Kennedy Neurosis, uh, which was written in 73, I believe it was back then. And it talks about how the Kennedys men became sexual predators. Uh, I've even got something in the new book about uh, the fact that Jack Kennedy, uh, uh, when he married uh, he met, when he married Jackie, he'd already been married and basically was a bigamist. So the Kennedys, uh, you know, were womanizers. They were, you know, that's that's what, you know, they were best known for. But uh, this whole situation with Marilyn Monroe uh, should should have never happened. And, uh, you know, it, it really bothers me that, that that's, that's what happened to this woman who was not a dumb blonde. You can read her poetry in the new book. You can read 
the fact that she read Ulysses and so on and so forth that way. But uh, all of that kind of, uh, uh, you know, let me, let me believe at least that I'd circled back and I'd proven that Dorothy was murdered and, and, and Marilyn and all of that. And so, as I say, I was going to quit. Right. Do you think, just in, in a quick question, do you think that the Kennedy's enemies knew at that time that they were involved in her death? So do you think that that was another thing that may have led to JFK is like they knew that they were involved in killing this innocent woman? Well, uh, I do. And uh, I'll tell you why, because J. Edgar Hoover, uh, while he was a despicable human being uh, in so many ways, this lie about Oswald alone and all that uh, Oswald alone been perpetuated through the years, especially at the sixth floor museum in Dealey Plaza, which is all about a shrine to Oswald, which is ridiculous. Uh, But uh, uh, Hoover, Hoover was smart. He, he didn't have a little black book. He had a collection of little black books with the dirt on everybody, all the politicians, the Kennedys, everybody. And he and they knew he had it, you know, pictures of them with the uh, women and when they were married. I mean, congressmen, senators, everybody. I think he had probably dirt on Chief Justice Earl Warren, all these people. And that's how he kept his job uh, all those years. And so unfortunately, yes, I think they knew about Kennedy's. With the wiretaps, I proved exactly how those wiretaps took place. Veronica Hamill, uh, the, the television actress who was on that, uh, uh, you know, uh, famous show on CBS, uh, uh, Marilyn's Home. She bought Marilyn's Home, and she found all of these wire uh, wiretapped uh, uh, instruments in the home. It took her a hundred thousand dollars to get them all out. So uh, Hoover was a bad guy, and and I know that the FBI for sure knew everything those Kennedys were doing. Wow. Yeah. And I've heard that the the Robert Kennedy was friends with the one of the high level heads of the LAPD at that time in 60. Yeah, that was that was Parker. And that's how they covered up uh, Maryland's death. So I was going to quit. And then uh, I got a phone call in February. And uh, I don't know how these things happen. As I say, it's, it's just amazing. But uh, this gentleman uh, sent me an email first and said, Mr. Shaw, I watched a presentation of yours that went viral at the Allen Library in Allen, Texas, which is right next to Dallas that you did uh, two years ago on, uh, I believe it was denial of justice. And uh, he said, uh, I knew Dorothy Kilgallen. Well, any time I get an email that's, that that's, has that information in it, my ears perk up because so many people, you know, there's not so many people anymore who knew Dorothy Kilgallen. So he said, call me. So I called him. Well, what he told me, and I don't want to take too much of the time because it's in the book and everything. I had started to look into the Warren Commission, which I had never done before. And in the book, you will see transcriptions of uh, audio conversations between LBJ and uh, 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 J. Edgar Hoover uh, on November. The first one's on November 29th, 1963. My wife told me that uh, yesterday that she, we think we got those at the Lyndon Johnson Library. And uh, basically w- what those conversations are all about are amazing, and I just want you to know what they were doing. They were stacking the deck, they decided, with only those members that they knew that they could control with the Oswald alone conclusion. And uh, they, they, in fact, they decided they didn't want any other uh, investigation at all because, uh, you know, and you'll see why. I'll tell you why the, what the motive was there. So what they decided to do was to go ahead and and uh, find members that they could trust and that they could control and everything. And so just quickly, I'll just read you an excerpt. Uh, G. Edgar Hoover, are you familiar with this proposed group they're trying to put together on this study of your report, Oswald Alone, 
and other things, two from the House, two from the Senate, somebody from the courts, J. Edgar Hoover. Well, I think we have to. Uh, I want to get by with just the report. I, and, and J. Edgar Hoover then says, I think it would be very, very bad to have a rash of investigations, whether they're in Congress or Texas or whatever. LBJ, there's only one way we can stop them, stop them to appoint a high level investigation to evaluate report and put somebody that is pretty good on that who we can select and so on and so forth. J. Edgar Hoover, yes, because we get a bunch of television going and it will be bad. J. Edgar Hoover, it'll be a three ring, three ring circus. And then the second conversation, which take place not too long later after that, they talk about each of the members that they can possibly, uh, oh, thanks, thanks, Sabrina. I appreciate your comment very much. It means a lot to me. Uh, you know, they decide on who the members are gonna be and they go down through them. Now you're seeing the cover of the book and that's important because when we talk about corruption in the Warren Commission, we're gonna go through these individuals and I'm gonna tell you who the one is that I finally discovered uh, we could we could get through the uh, um, the the code of silence that they had with the members uh, through a whistleblower uh, uh, account that's never been uh, exposed until now. So they go through them and they decide. Well, you're going to see on the you're going to see Alan Dulles there in the bow tie. He was the former director of the CIA, who Kennedy had fired, by the way. You got Gerald Ford over there. You got uh, Senator Richard Russell. You got uh, there's a. Uh, um, Chief Justice Warren, uh, all of those. McCoy, McCoy's in there, isn't he? Uh, John McCoy John is McCoy. right there on the uh, left-hand side all the way, a, a, a guy. That's Lee uh, Rankin, who is the counsel to the Warren Commission. Uh, I think that's Senator Richard Russell there, the third one from the from the right. That's Hale Boggs. Anyway, we'll go into those and, and divulge the, uh, the one that we need to talk about. But they got what they wanted. And uh, so this, this man, and his name is Morris Wolf, and his photograph is in the book. Um, he started talking to me about some things that happened. And I first looked into who he was, because you always want to do that, as you do, William, with the sources. And, and uh, I found out that he was a Yale graduate. He went to work for Bobby Kennedy when Bobby Kennedy was in the White House, or Bobby Kennedy was in the Justice Department. Uh, he was in the White House because JFK was in the White House. And he, and he gave me some information right then that I knew that this man was trustworthy. He said, you know, Mr. Shaw, uh, I was the go-between between the uh, Justice Department and the White House, between JFK and RFK, and I took messages back and forth. I rode my bicycle or I ran back and forth with those messages because they didn't trust this man who's on the right side of the, of the cover, J. Edgar Hoover, that he wouldn't have wiretapped their conversations. That's just, just amazing that you think about that. That's the, That's the... President of the United States and the Attorney General of the United States saying, we can't trust this guy. In fact, J. Edgar Hoover works for Robert Kennedy. Right. And the gentleman Morris Wolf told me that, uh, you know, uh, Hoover used to circumvent uh, Robert Kennedy and go directly to the president. Bad guy, that's for sure. And you'll see he gets even worse. So he tells but that me that. The first time. JFK used to use back channels for communication during the missile crisis. And he had oh, yeah. done that before and had gotten caught by this national security state. And they were incensed because they were kept out of the loop. So it's, it was just, it's a just mind boggling that this man could have that much power. But remember that little black book that he had. He was in control. So what happens? Then this Morris Wolf says, well, Mr. Shaw, I spent about two years with the, the president. And then I started working for one of the commission members as his legislative assistant. 
And I said, well, listen, uh, you know, what was that like? He said, well, I have to tell you, I, I was so fortunate. And I want to get my, my paperwork out here. So I quote this right. He said, um, I was able to go with the uh, senator to the uh, commission hearings. And again, these details are so important. I'm, I'm monitoring exactly how Dorothy would have handled this. Uh, you went with him? Yes, in his sob. He was a tall man and he had trouble stretching in there. But I went to the hearings with him. And then I was able to sit in on the hearings and wait for him by sitting in the back. And, and what I noticed was at times uh, uh, the man I worked for was very distressed with what was happening because they wouldn't tell him when the hearings were. They basically, the staff did most of the investigating, not the members, which, which was just shocking to me. Because and, and, and the motive there is, is obvious. J. Edgar Hoover and, and Earl Warren and uh, LBJ want to control what's happening with the commission. You can control the staff members a lot easier than you can the members. So he said, listen, I have to tell you exactly what uh, this uh, particular uh, member of the Warren Commission, my boss, told me. They, uh, the commission members already know about the Jack Ruby connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. Now, that one is the most important one, as we'll get around to in a bit. They know about the Jack Ruby connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. It's more than Oswald, but Hoover and Chief Justice Earl Warren keep pushing the Oswald alone conclusion. Our new president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, now wants to cover up and move on. They want to bury the truth under a pile of stones. And then this one. This is the rationalization that these seven evil men, and I'll call them evil, deceptive, uh, just unbelievably, uh, you know, dishonest seven members of the commission uh, rationalized their decision about Oswald alone. They, the commission members, say the Oswald conclusion is good for God and country, but there is internal corruption in the commission. So that's what this, uh, this particular uh, Warren Commission member told Morris Wolf. And he said, you know, also, I should tell you, Mr. Shaw, and this is what just made me yell and scream almost. I knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And I said, well, Morris, how did that happen? He said, well, I used to go to soirees, which uh, your audience knows are parties, at, these, at this uh, particular uh, member's uh, home in Georgetown. Uh, Jack Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, or Jack Kennedy and Jack, Jackie were there at times because this particular member and his wife were very close, Ken, uh, very close friends with the Kennedys. In fact, they were the first couple to be invited to the White House. And I sat at the dinner table, Mr. Shaw, and every time I say this, I get a shiver, right next to Dorothy Kilgallen. And he called her a bright light bulb. He said she was such an incredible investigative reporter. While we're having dinner, she's asking me questions about uh, this member's uh, involvement in the commission, commission uh, uh, hearings and so on and so forth that way. And I just, it almost just blew my mind. And I said, well, okay. And, uh, you know, I want to tell you that one of the way that I, one of the ways I confirmed what the information is that I gave you about what this, uh, this member said is that I was able to find oral histories by this member at the University of Kentucky and the University of Georgia corroborating an awful lot of what uh, his disgust was with the Warren Commission and a couple things that I will mention. But one of the little things that was in there, Dorothy would have noticed was that this particular commission member lived at 29th and N Street in Georgetown. And that's exactly where Morris Wolf told me uh, that he had gone to the parties. So I have all this information and then it just popped into my mind. I said, I have to ask you, 
uh, question. Because not only had Dorothy been at the uh, Ruby trial, but a, a huge deal happened in, uh, is it 1964, but in the first part of 65, when she published the Warren Commission Jack Ruby testimony on the front page of the New York Journal American, she was not supposed to have that information. Uh, FBI uh, Hoover, uh, Director Hoover sent agents to her home to find out where she got it. People read in the book that she would not divulge her source. And it's uh, one sentence that is, is all is, says what Dorothy Kilgallen was all about. I would rather die than give you my sources. But that was a big deal. And J. Edgar Hoover was furious over that information getting there into, into the Journal American. It was a big deal. It was kind of like the, the Pentagon Papers being exposed or the Nixon tapes or that kind of thing. You know, uh, Snowden's uh, NSA secrets. At that time, that was huge. And so I had to ask Morris, Morris Well, I said, is it possible that that member who was a longstanding friend of, uh, of uh, Dorothy Kilgallen's could have given her the Warren Commission uh, Jack Ruby testimony? And his words were exactly this, very likely. And now you'll hear what I believe was also uh, in it, that Dorothy knew and, and, and went ahead and, and made me believe that she was even in more danger uh, as it came close to when she died than I ever knew before. I, I had to kind of put it together uh, with connecting the dots. I found uh, documents uh, where uh, this particular member, and we'll just divulge his name in just a second, I'm not trying to uh, be too secretive, but it all comes together because I found in the oral histories his letter of resignation, which he never sent, but I have it in there. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, an FBI, excuse me, there's a, a Warren Commission document uh, I am uh, Warren, uh, Earl Warren and, uh, and Hoover want the Oswald alone uh, conclusion and won't look at anything else. Talk about the Kennedys want to, wanting to block any other conclusion but Oswald alone. Why? Because they didn't want any investigation of Joe fixing the 60 election and they didn't for sure want any investigation of Bobby Kennedy's complicity in the Marilyn Monroe death. So on the outside, uh, they're, they're using the Assistant Attorney General Kotzenbach, who writes a letter to the Warren Commission members, we only need to look into Oswald alone. That's what this is all about. They're, they're never going to go ahead and let any other investigation happen. And so uh, you know, they win in, in many ways when the Oswald alone conclusion comes out. He had no help. There was no conspiracy. There was no this, no that, and everything else. And then what, what really um, solidified my belief that I was getting the right kind of information that I could put in a book from Morris Wolf. He said, Mr. Shaw, look at the Warren Commission giving the report, which we have on the, on the screen right now. Uh, that's Earl Warren there giving the report to Lyndon Johnson. Look at the men in that picture. And so I did and I look across and he said, you notice all of them are kind of standing alone, but look on the right side because one man is almost hiding behind another. And he's hiding behind uh, Boggs, uh, who is uh, Representative Boggs, and between uh, Boggs and um, uh, Alan Dulles. That is John Sherman Cooper, Senator John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky. And if you go back, look at the disgust on his face. And if you go back to looking at the, uh, when uh, J. Edgar Hoover and uh, LBJ are on those audio tapes, they talk about his being such a respected man. I have all kinds of tributes in the book. I have one from Jackie Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy Onassis, who said this was a, a man of character. And so he was so disturbed 
by what was going on in the commission. And here's the kicker. He and Richard Russell, who's third from the, from the left, they demanded a dissent uh, in the uh, final report, the, the Warren Commission report. And think how this would have changed things. The dissent was they did not buy the sil silver bullet, single bullet theory, single bullet theory that one person shot the president of the United States. They demanded that. J. Edgar Hoover and, uh, and uh, LBJ and Earl Warren promised them that would be in the final report. Well, it wasn't. That would have changed things so much. There wouldn't have been this Oswald alone. It had the Oswald alone conclusion with a dissent in there. That would have changed everything. That would have changed all the research through the years. That would have changed all these books by authors who, you know, they weren't at the, the Ruby trial. I wasn't there who, who published books. And if they don't have the research of Dorothy Kilgallen in there, they're worthless. But if that, if that dissent would have been in there, William, that would have changed everything. And it wasn't. And that's why Senator John Sherman Cooper, who was such a, a respected senator, is looking away. He doesn't even want to look. He's just disgusted with what happened. Yeah, and he was actually involved with Frank Church. So he had some actual, he's kind of a dissenter overall, but I don't think they needed or wanted his, anything to, to question the 100% so-called veracity of that report. You're right. Yeah, Even though the audio tape walked it back. Like some commission members walked it back later, but the report itself doesn't have that kind of uh, nuance to it at all. I have to admit, some of the material in here has been out there for a long time. The audio tapes have been out there. Um, maybe some walk back. I, I haven't seen much of that. There was a code of silence that they had that, that J. Edgar Hoover and, and uh, Warren uh, swore them to. I have, an, I have a, a, a document, a letter to each one of them. You, you know, keep this quiet. You don't want to get out there on television. They, they, they put uh, Harris, or, uh, Senator Cooper in there because they know that they could trust him to, to do his best and so on and so forth. And then they just uh, uh, double crossed him as well. So, but the, what nobody's ever done is, is connect the dots there. Connect the dots with what uh, uh, a whistleblower, uh, I guess you would call him, a eyewitness who got inside the Warren Commission hearings. And I will tell you right now, I believe every word he said, because I've, I've corroborated that through. These oral histories are so important. I'm pleased to say Purdue University, my alma mater, is archiving my body of work. And I have an oral history in, in there. And maybe through the years, somebody will take my research and want to look into things. I hope they do. But those oral histories, that's from, that's from the, the mouth of, uh, of Senator Cooper. Uh, and, and he is just so upset with regard to happened. Now, many people may ask this question. First of all, why didn't he come forward? Well, I think he felt a loyalty to that oath of silence and uh, all of that uh, and, and decided that he couldn't speak up at that particular time. Uh, so why did Morris Wolf trust me with this information? Because I think he felt, as, as I, I surmised from him, uh, that he felt a loyalty to uh, Senator Cooper. And then I think he, he decided that uh, he thought Senator Cooper, uh, who was such a close friend of Dorothy's, would want, uh, want, would, would want him to tell somebody. And, and obviously then he trusted, with, trusted me with this. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, they really... They really put it together for that commission. I mean, just some real characters, too. That even Dulles was even on there, too. They were probably all afraid. I mean, Johnson and and, and uh, J. Edgar Hoover were, there was a lot of strange things around those guys. So Well, yeah, especially Johnson. I found a KBG uh, 
KGB, yeah, document uh, of all things in the uh, in the archives, I believe, and and it talks about the fact that the Russians believed LBJ was behind the death of uh, of JFK, and that's not a stretch. Uh, nobody benefited more than anybody. That Marcelo, by the way, what happened here is Marcelo was never investigated, and go back to that comment that we made uh, that I that the Morris Wolf made. The commission members already know about the Jack Ruby connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. Well, there's the clue. Uh, Jack was in, in Dallas. I've connected him to Marcello and Oswald and everything else. If they had just investigated his being involved in organized crime, it would have taken them right back to, to Marcello. But they didn't want to do that. And the Kennedys were trying to, were helping. You know, we don't want that investigation for sure. So uh, Johnson, though, it said uh, the, the, the Russians believe that he was involved in JFK's death, and many people believe that, but I've never been able to find a clear path to Johnson like you can find to Marcello, uh, or a clear path to the Cubans, or, you know, whatever. It, it, it's just, uh, when you look at motive, Marcello had the most to lose. He needed to shut up Bobby Kennedy, and that's why he orchestrated the death of JFK. There are a lot of things. There's, it had to be, there's some pretty good evidence of uh, John, uh, Richard Bartholomew book about the deep state in Texas. It had to be fixed in Texas. So the, there was a Texas connection to the assassination. And a lot of those people were around uh, Johnson. And Johnson had mob connections. I, thought, I think it was one of the people I researched said they walked into a room and Johnson was in the room with like Marcello and some of these others. So Johnson had much stranger connections than people would think. He was very well connected in Hollywood. Because um, so, that was you know, part of the Democratic Party base. Yeah. You know, uh, I haven't used this word in any interview before, but you've said it so well. Look at Hoover. Look at Bobby Kennedy. Look at Joe Kennedy. Look at Lyndon Johnson. Uh, look at Dulles there and Earl Warren. Survivors. They were survivors. They had a way of, uh, you know, I don't know if we can go to, you know, present day politics or whatever, but there were survivors. And, yeah, and uh, you know, both Democratic and Republicans uh, have survived through the years some way or another, uh, despite uh, corruption. Uh, but in this situation, I think it's the most, uh, you know, it, it just is the most uh, shocking uh, corruption that we can have. And, and obviously they got away with it. Uh, and, yeah. and But I'm pleased to put it out there and people can now read the book or watch the presentations and watch your interview and thing and they can make up their own mind as to what happened. It's great. I mean, that you're doing that research and, and accruing that information is so important. So kudos to you for doing that. Um, Mark, we are at about the hour, 10 minutes. Do you have time for a few questions? Absolutely. John asks you, Claudine Langer's case was an odd one. It was the victim's gun and drugs may have been in play. Is that correct? Claudine Langer would have been convicted of murder if the police hadn't screwed up so badly. They went to the home where she lived with, uh, with uh, Spider Savage. He was going to kick her out of the home. He'd had enough of her. And uh, she knew that. So she's got this gun, and they're in the bathroom. And as she said in, my, in the interview, I'm going to put up my hands like this. As she said in my interview, I held it like this, Mr. Shaw, in her French you know, voice, and it just went off. Well, if, if the police hadn't screwed up, if they'd have gotten a search warrant, to go into uh, her, her home and Savage's home. They would have been able to, able to legally confiscate a diary that they found in her, uh, in her bedroom. They would have been able to have given her a drug test and they did find that diary 
and they did find uh, the uh, analysis of, of, of her drug test, which shows she was under the influence of uh, marijuana and so on and so forth, but they never got the warrant. So at try it, trial, that could not be uh, introduced, uh, John. And, uh, you know, I've said over and over, and I, I, I really believe it, that uh, there, there wasn't any accidental shooting of him. Uh, she was a very uh, caustic woman. She was a very, you know, an awful lot of the movie stars that I've interviewed and, and done with my shows or even with Bryant, you know, Kobe Bryant, when he came to his trial, it looked like he was dressed to go to the beach. Uh, the egos with these people, uh, but most of them, in my opinion, they're insecure. They're very insecure. And, and uh, Claudine was like that. And you have to think in her mind, you know, I'm living with the, uh, the most famous skier in the world, Spider Savage, and he's going to kick my ass out of the house. She couldn't let that happen. Okay. You can't let Marilyn go to the media. You can't do let Dorothy write her book. I mean, these are women and I, I defended women when I was especially a criminal defense lawyer, but you know, uh, there's a saying right here by my, by my computer. Uh, the dead cannot cry out for justice. It is the duty of the living to do so for them. So Marilyn and Dorothy are kind of like my clients when I was a criminal defense lawyer. I defend them. I'm trying to get them justice and so on and so forth that way. Um, there's a documentary that was uh, filmed about a year ago about the Spider Savage uh, legend and all of that. And the documentarians got in touch with me and wanted to interview me about uh, the Spider Savage killing and what I, what I saw at trial and some of the things that I just said and everything else like that. So I sat in, in my home for an hour and a half and gave them all that information. You think that was in the documentary? Absolutely not. What was the, what was the general thesis or conclusion of the documentary? Did they that have he was one? a good guy and a great skier. And, you know, very, he very flamboyant. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a movie star. If you've ever seen a photograph of him, it was like Paul Newman or Marilyn on the screen. I mean, he was a beautiful man. He was a hell of a skier, but he never should have died. Marilyn should have never died. JFK, Dorothy, Spider, so many of those. Uh, Nicole oh, Simpson yes. Brown. Let me go. Let me just say about that. Nicole Simpson Brown. You know, I, I went to a party in L.A. and I'm not too, trying to, to brag about this, but I have a point to it. And O.J. and and uh, and uh, and his and you know his wife uh, Brown were there. Okay. Nicole Simpson, no, Cole Brown Simpson. She lit up the room. I've, I've never seen a more beautiful woman in my life. And I always go back to, to that image of her. So as beautiful as Marilyn, frankly. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Oswald asks, have you, has Shaw come across Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould's JFK research? And if so, are you in agreement with their theses? I don't know what their view is. Do you have any familiarity with them? I'm afraid Os uh, Oswald, that's an interesting first name you've got there. Uh, it, it, could you give us just a, a quick hint of what that's about? Because those, yeah. are, I, I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed if, I, if I've if i missed something, but I, I've never heard those names before. I don't either, so I don't know. Uh, let's move on to the next one. John asks a, uh, another question. Are you aware of the bioweapon project in New Orleans under development by Dr. Alton Oxner and Dr. Mary Sherman? Both Oswald and Ruby were involved in it, according to Ed Haslam. Have you heard that? I have not. And, and I'm only going to use as a defense that I'm a Dorothy believer. Uh, based on her background and her, uh, you know, award-winning Pulitzer Prize-nominated uh, journalists and, and her reputation and all of that, uh, she thought it was, was uh, Jack Ruby was the key. Oswald wasn't. I haven't looked into an awful lot of things because 
like I say, I'm, an, I'm a Dorothy believer. And I think she had it right. Uh, there was the double cross. Uh, Marcello was then double crossed by, Marcel, uh, by uh, Bobby Kennedy. He's got to get rid of Jack Kennedy, so Bobby's powerless. Uh, Marcel, Marcello uses his, uh, his underlings in, uh, in, uh, in Dallas. In, in fact, uh, one of them, uh, Campisi, guess who was the first person to visit Jack Ruby when he was arrested? The first person to visit him in jail, Campisi, Ma uh, Marcello's underling. And then you go with we go with uh, with uh, Belli being brought in and so on and so forth. I mean, she had it right in my opinion, and and so I apologize, John, if you're disappointed in me, but um, I, I stayed with Dorothy's research all the way through. Interesting. Have you ever heard uh, Ketchum asks, "Is there any validity to the two Oswalds theory and the Warren Commission trying to cover that up?" Have you ever heard that? Uh, President Joe Biden, like all the presidents before him. It's refusing to give us all of the JFK assassination documents. But at the, boy, I might have the dates wrong. At the end of last year, the first part of this year, we got some of them, 1,500, I think, something like that. Well, I went through them, and some of these so-called experts on the JFK assassination said there's nothing in there at all. Well, I found some things that were in there. For instance, it talks about Marcello's uh, multi-million dollar, billion, almost a billionaire in 1968, uh, when he's worried about uh, Bobby Kennedy becoming president. In those documents, there was the mention of the two Oswalds theory, but it was not uh, connected to the Warren Commission material. In all of that that I've looked at, I've never seen uh, the fact that they had that. But there is the mention, there's a photograph in the, in the book of uh, Dulles, Alan Dulles, at LBJ's ranch. And LBJ has on his tall cowboy boots. And it's a really funny picture because you know, LBJ is real tall and Dulles is just a little guy. And uh, supposedly, you know, they were talking about, there's a couple mentions in there about uh, Alan Dulles talking about the whole thing with Oswald and, you know, and all these things. But again, I, I really haven't investigated that as much as maybe I should, because again, Dorothy was a Ruby guy. She thought that was the, the one that uh, was the key and she interviewed him and every, all of her research was tied to Ruby. I heard the same thing. I heard that somebody else, another researcher whose name I don't recall offhand, but they said Ruby's the key to the all of the things because he was the connected to all the nefarious actors around the JFK assassination. Um, it's great to talk with you again, Mark. Congrats, congrats on the new book, Fighting for Justice. Is the best place, I think, like you uh -huh. said, it's at, uh, if people want to reach out to you, is markshawbooks.com, right? Sabrina, I'm in love with you for what you've said here. Thank you so much about uh, Dorothy. I, I have such respect for her. She shouldn't have died. I get very emotional about it. It shouldn't have happened. Yeah, uh, yes, M. Shaw, I-N, at Yahoo, and Mark Shaw Books. And please, no matter if you think it's insignificant, whatever it is, if you've got some information you think that I could uh, benefit from, please get in touch with me. Yeah, so you can get that there. Where's the best place to get the book? You have... Uh, it's on Amazon, right? And Kindle and the paperback, correct? Yeah, and the audio book will be up there in a couple, three days. But I really, uh, like you do, William, I think, I, I really uh, tell people, go to an independent bookstore. You know, get the book there. At least order it through them, whatever that way. They're struggling so much. The book business is not doing very well. And I think it's a lot because of the economy. I noticed that Amazon today marked down the book, uh, which I'm glad to see because it's too expensive. But do that or go to libraries, uh, get it from libraries. But uh, uh, yeah, most of the books are sold by Amazon and it's up there for sure. But go to those independent bookstores. 
Awesome. And uh, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Again, the author's name is Mark Shaw, and the title is Fighting for Justice, The Improbable Journey to Exposing Covers About JFK Assassination and the Deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen, just published November 29th, 2022. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, stay there. Stay there.